Hi, it's Will Briggs here. Welcome to the podcast from our Roaming Through Romans Lent course. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to point you to uh, information on our website at thevinesheffield.org.uk slash Rome 2021. That's R-O-A-M 2021, uh, where there is more information about how we are coming under God's word during this season. Uh, please also note that uh, this session was recorded during a Zoom meeting. It has lots of stops and starts, and there are some visuals. So it's also available on YouTube. If you prefer to see what's going on, you can look us up there. But great to have you with, with us listening in, and we hope you enjoy. Open up Romans 8. This is, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite chapters, um, but this is my favorite chapter uh, in the whole Bible. But um, where it starts, and this is and just to sort of bring it into where the flow of what Paul's been talking about um, is it starts in Romans, uh, uh, sort of he's connected to Romans 7. So if you were with us last week, we, we, uh, we had a look at uh, this, the sense in which Paul is seeing in Romans 7, he's wrestling with the, the human condition of being bound to sin and death. He's wrestling with it from the point of view of his Jewish heritage in which he sees how we are bound uh, by the, to the power of sin and death uh, by the witness of God's good law. So the God's law speaking truth uh, reveals in us sin and brokenness and signs and seals it. Um, and what Paul has been doing is saying that's how it was, uh, but the gospel is one that's shaped by Christ's death and resurrection. And so as we are included in Christ, as counted as one of his, then we share in his death that breaks this old bond and we now enter into a new bond, uh, justified uh, and, 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 and received by God's grace. And now we are bound to Jesus, who is like a new Adam. And we're bound to him in a relational and covenantal way. And this is by the way of faith, by way of entrusting ourselves uh, to him in, in an act of love and self-giving. And that way we now live according to the way of the spirit, not according to the way of the written law. So that's where Paul's brought us uh, by the end of Romans 7. And what, what Romans 8 is, is an exploration of this way of living out of the way, uh, the way of the Spirit. And that's what we're going to explore tonight, and that's, and that's really good. But before we get there, there's, there's one thing which I really want to uh, unpack, because uh, what Paul's doing here isn't, isn't something new. He's not inventing this. Uh, we've been following all the way through. We've been following how uh, God is a God that reaches out, uh, wanting to have reunion with his people. And when we start talking about this move from the written law, the way of the law that binds us to sin, to the way of the spirit that binds us in relationship uh, with Jesus, um, it, it reminds me of something from the prophet Jeremiah. So I'm going to put that on the screen. Here is the words of the prophet, prophet Jeremiah from chapter 31 at the point where the people of Israel are at their the height of their sin, if you like. They're, on, they're being taken off to exile. And you can see here, first of all, there's this recognition of that being their bondage to sin. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the old covenant, <laughs> the one I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
Um, that wasn't a, it wasn't a, a it was a right thing, but it wasn't a, 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 a an effectual thing. It didn't uh, hold them in that union. So what's the new covenant going to look like? Uh, the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, is this. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me. <laughs> uh, they, they will know from the least of them to the greatest. There will be relationship. There will be a knowledge of one another. It's almost a form of intimacy. So you can see even in Jeremiah's day, there's, there's this hope and there's this expectation that the, 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 the covenant of the law will make way for this new covenant of the way of the spirit. And when, when the, the word of God is live, alive within our hearts. And that was the hope at the time of Jeremiah. And what Paul is doing is picking up on that and saying, that's now fulfilled uh, in Jesus. It's exactly uh, the gospel that Paul is declaring. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, the way of the spirit, when the God's word and God's spirit is alive within us, writing his law in our hearts, whispering deep to our souls and confirming in us uh, all that we are. And of course, this is why Paul is actually writing um, his letter in the first place, because he wants to encourage us with these truths uh, so that we can live out of them. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at Romans 8 and we're going to sort of split it vaguely into three sections. We're going to look at the first section uh, first before we have a quick break into our groups. Um, and that first section is going to be uh, verses 1 uh, to 17. So that's what we'll, we'll, we'll do now. Um, and uh, yeah, so have your Bibles ready because I'm going to go through it. Um, but I, I hope, I'm hoping to try and show the flow of what Paul's coming from and, uh, and, and sort of tap into a couple of places to show uh, where he's bringing it depth. So what he's doing is he wants to show us what this life in the spirit is like. And what he's doing, he's going to do a whole bunch of comparisons uh, it's not like this, how it used to be. It's now like this under the spirit. And the first thing he says in verse one is that uh, a life in the spirit has means there is now no condemnation. There, are, there is no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where there may have been guilt, and uh, now there is no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So he's, he's recapping, if you like, but he's making it clear. In the spirit, we have no condemnation. And then you can see how uh, in verse 3 and verse 4, he, he recaps where he's been. Uh, what the law was powerless to do in that was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son to be uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so in Jesus, he condemns sin in the sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. And we don't need to unpack that. He's literally just recapping the, all the stuff that we talked about in Romans chapter 3 and other places where it talks about how Jesus uh, brought about that, that release, that, that path of freedom for us. So in the spirit, we live with no condemnation. And the second thing is we, we get to is in verse 5, where it's clear that our being joined to Christ, to be living by the way of the Spirit, isn't some theoretical thing. It isn't just a matter of the brain. It affects how we live. So as ones who are bound to Jesus, we no longer, in verse 5, 
have minds set on what the sinful nature desires. Rather, we have our minds set on what the spirit desires. So our way of life now in our new identity as belonging to Jesus is, is to have a way of life that is matched, matching the desires of the spirit of God. And in verse six, it, this is reinforced. Uh, the mind of the sinful person is death. It's towards death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And in fact, in verse seven, he makes it very clear. The sinful mind is hostile to God, uh, and it, it doesn't submit to God's law. Uh, it, it doesn't submit to God's law. And in verse eight, uh, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. He, he's making it very, making this comparison very stark. So you can see how so far there's there's this little match. There's little twins. You know, no guilt, no no longer guilt. There's no condemnation. It's not about the desires of the sinful nature, it's the desires of the spirit. It's not towards death, it's towards life and peace. And this makes sense. And now he's mentioned this, it's not about being hostile to God. And we're waiting for the, for the matching phrase. If it's not hostile to God, then what is it? What is, what is it to live uh, in, under the law of the spirit? But before he gets there, what he's going to do, he's going to build up to it. Right, you know, the way of the way under the law is that is hostile to God, but that isn't you, is it? It's like He's looking at us and, and building up to it. This isn't me. This isn't us. And so, at verse nine, he, he's almost he's he's emphasizing it. You're not controlled by the sinful nature, are you? Uh, no, you're controlled by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, which He does, that's not who you are. You're not controlled. By the sinful nature, you're controlled by the spirit. And he continues going. If anyone does not have the spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you must have the spirit. He, he's building up to his point. And then in verse 10, no, if Christ is in you, uh, then even though your body might be dead uh, in its flesh because of your sin, the, but your, if you're in Christ, your spirit is alive because of the righteousness that Christ has given you. So, so we're not stuck in this death. We're not hostile to God. You have life within you. And not only that, uh, in verse 11, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit by which you live, then not even our bodies are going to be stuck in death. They also will be filled with life and peace because he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So you see, we're not hostile to God. <laughs> no, so the, in, in the sinful nature, we're hostile to God, but that's not us. We have the spirit, the spirit of life, the spirit who make, puts life in our minds and the spirit who put life in our body. And now he's going to give us what that means in, in terms of living by the spirit. But before we get there, I just want to point one thing out uh, one of the places where uh, I think you, you see a, a little joy of the depths of Paul. Um, and this comes down to, this, is, this reflects on a question about the Trinity. Now, I, I know that every time when someone mentions the theology of the Trinity, uh, people start eyes rolling over, trying to, you know, think, expecting our brains to, um, to explode. Um, and, and, and even some people mock uh, uh, the, the Christian theology for believing in the Trinity, saying it's not in the Bible, uh, but I can tell, I can hear it clearly is. 
Um, and, and, it, and we understand it if we ask the question, okay, Paul, what are you saying? Who lives in us? If we're in the spirit, who lives in us? And Paul gives us five different ways of answering that question. Who lives in you? In verse 9, he says, the spirit lives in you. In verse 9, he also says, the spirit of God lives in you. And then in verse 9, he says, it's the spirit of Christ who lives in you. And then in verse 10, he simply says, Christ is in you. And then in verse 11, he says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. <laughs> so Paul imagines who is in us? Who are we caught up into? Who are we living by now? Uh, it's not just the spirit. It's the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, Christ himself, the spirit of the father. It's like the whole I, the whole divine being is caught up uh, in, in, in integrating us into a new way of life. We, we're caught up into the divine dance, if that makes sense. And that's not just a little bit of esoteric theology, although I, I love it because I'm a theological nerd and, and I love finding the Trinity um, in, in the New Testament. But it's important because the answer, the, the matching phrase to those who are hostile to God is to understand how un, in the, under the law of the Spirit, in the way of the Spirit, we are no longer, first of all, obligated in any sense to live according to the ways of the flesh. And we see that um, in verse, uh, uh, verse 11, if I call up the right place. No, verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have no obligation. It's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. We're free of that, but we live according to the spirit. Uh, and, and, and we put to death the, de the deeds, misdeeds of the flesh and we live. We're not hostile to God anymore. Here it is in verse 14, because those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The opposite of being hostile to God is we are now made to be children of God. And in fact, in verse uh, 15, um, verse 14, he says here, we're not only are we children of God, but he actually refers to us as sons of God. Now, uh, I, I'm not saying, mentioning that to be gender exclusive. There's a, there's a reason why Paul uses the word sons. And even a, a lot of the, 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 the translations, the more modern translations, which have a very good at gender neutral language, will deliberately mention sons here. Uh, because it's a point that Paul will make in a little bit later uh, that we'll get to. But the point here is that we are made children of God. We're caught up into him. Uh, our, our identity has, is now, is, it takes on a, a familial sense. It, that relationship has, is now mentioned in terms of being children. And you see, our former identity was driven by fear and obligation and hostility, it was the stuff of spiritual slavery, if you like. Uh, and, but living for Jesus isn't just like, isn't like swapping masters. It's to live a whole new kind of life. Uh, it's not to be in a spirit, to live according to a spirit of slavery. Oop. Oop. Excuse me one second. We're not to live according to slaves to fear. Uh, rather, we've received this spirit of sonship. And you see that in verse 15. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And in the spirit, we then reach out to God, not as a slave, but in the same way that Jesus did. 
not with trepidation, but with a cry of intimacy, a cry of respect, a cry of delight. And Paul says it here, by him, the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, which is the way that Jesus would have, re have related to his father. It's not quite um, daddy, that word Abba, but it is that uh, familiar sense of, of, of speaking to your father. It's not as formal as saying Peter or, or, or father, but it is, it is a sense of closeness and, and uh, there's, it's a familial expression. And so in Christ, we reach out to God to, to the Father as if Christ did, Christ as, as Christ did. And so the Spirit who lives in us bears witness in us, verse 16, that we are God's children. In Christ, we are God's children. And, and, and at this point, I'm not, I want to just pause. I'm not, we're not going to break the rooms just yet, but I just want to pause and out of my little run through the verses to make us think about that. Um, to, to understand that the way of Christ, uh, the, way, the, the way of our Christian walk is to relate to, is, is caught up in this understanding of God being our Father. And this taps into one of the most important questions uh, that guide our Christian walk, uh, is how we conceive of God. Uh, one of the skills of walking as a disciple of Jesus is to reconfigure our imagination according to the truth that's in God's word so that we can conceive of God himself in a way that is that is truthful and deepening and encouraging and so one of the things that that I've learned to ask myself and and especially when when I need to ask it my wife um, will turn to me and ask it of me and that is right now in the moment you're in how do you imagine God if I was to ask you to paint a word picture of what the presence of God in your life looked like right now, what picture would you give me? And that picture is going to be shaped by a whole bunch of things, including the experience of our own fathers and our own family and of the men in our life in general, uh, because that's the language that's, that's being used. And it will be shaped by our fears in life and various other things. But we need to reconfigure that imagination according to the truth. So we're living out of reality um, and processing uh, our journey uh, under the love of God. Because we will find ourselves uh, with our concept of God being challenged uh, by the sinful nature and the ways of the world. So the world will say things like, you're abandoned, you're alone. But Paul will say and remind us that, no, you are children of God, you are embraced you are accepted and and it's one of the things that i've noticed that's very typical of english culture is that we often run around with a spirit of orphanhood in many ways as if god doesn't care we're on our own or we've let him down and so he's turned our backs on us or, or with a sense of stiff upper lip i'll do it myself make my absent father proud of me and much of the way in which our inner life and even our society is shaped around that a sense of abandonment and self-sufficiency and trying hard to prove ourselves. Yet the truth of God, which speaks of God as which speaks of God as Father, confronts that and challenges that in a healthy way. So a question we're going to ask in our groups in a little while is exactly that question. So you might want to start thinking about it: is what is your picture of God right now? 
And can you hear the whisper of the spirit who bears witness to our spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Uh, he is a good, good father. Uh, you can rest in him. And, and that's what we're going to reflect on in a little while. Uh, but before we do that, there's one final thing to talk about in this first part of, of Romans 8 as we head towards uh, verse 17. And that's what it comes back to this, this question of sons. Because the, one of the reasons why Paul uses the word sons is because in his day, um, uh, the, the, the difference, one of the big differences between sons and daughters is, what, is that the sons got to inherit things. The daughters didn't. So I'm not condoning that, but he's saying you're not just children in the sense of having affection for a, for a younger person. Uh, you are counted as inheritors. Whether you're male or female, you're counted as those who are, will inherit inherit from your heavenly father you are heirs and you see this in verse 17 now, if we are children then we are heirs so we can take out the word sons and we can just put in the word heirs of god and co-heirs with christ if indeed we share in his sufferings and all that we might also share in his glory uh, that's verse 17 and we'll look at that sufferings bit in a minute but i want to just tap into this sense of what does it mean to have an inheritance in, in God or to be co-heirs co uh, with Christ. And to tap into that, I want to go right back to our first session where I put this diagram up, um, where we talked about the covenants of God, God's desire, remember God's uh, living desire to, to, be, to be reunited with his creation. And so he, he binds himself in promise to his people throughout the ages. And then we saw how in this covenant, was all these promises were fulfilled in Jesus, who, who, who brought the correct human response. Um, he had a heart after God's own, and so he was our true Messiah. He, is, he was faithful and obedient, and so he, he offered himself as a holy and priestly sacrifice under the covenant of Moses. He is full of faith and trust, and so just like Abraham, he fulfills the promise to be blessed, to be a blessing. And so we saw that, right? Uh, that, and, and that built us towards some of what Paul was getting to, getting to. But another way of looking at this is to understand these covenants in terms of an inheritance, in terms of a, of a reward, what, what flows from them. And one of the things is, if Jesus is our Messiah, then what does a Messiah get from being the Messiah? Well, one of the things is that the Messiah gets to have all authority in heaven and earth which has been given unto him. And, and, he, and the, uh, the messianic king can command his people to go. So that, that's, uh, that's something that comes from the messianic covenant. As the fulfiller of the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 28 is full of blessings. If you obey the law, then you will have and a whole bunch of things, but it includes victory and provision and authority with amongst the nations. And all those blessings flow to the one who fulfills that covenant. And then uh, to Abraham, uh, it's this promise, I'll make you a great nation. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And surely Jesus has that. That's his inheritance, if you like, from the promises of God to bless all the people, to form to himself a nation of, of, his, of his own. 
And of course, uh, the, 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 the promise that flows from the renewal of creation is eternal life itself. And at the end of, of the Bible, at Revelation, you see all this coming together, the new heavens, new earth, the lion laying down with the lamb, and all that sort of thing. So this is the inheritance of Christ, right? But Paul's point is this. We are, if we are in Christ, if we live according to his spirit, if his spirit is in us, then we also receive this inheritance, we are co-heirs. We are blessed. We belong to a great nation of God's people from every tribe and tongue. We have eternal life. We have been given authority in Jesus' name to go and make disciples. That's We inherit the promises of God's covenants, the promises of God's plan throughout all of history. And, and this is why Paul is, has been digging into this as he's trying to explain it to his friends in Rome because he wants them to understand what is theirs, understand what you have, understand what moves and changes your life. Um, sometimes I, I find uh, I, someone was talking to me about the, the heritage that's in the English church, and, uh, and I was and looking up a whole bunch of history, and you can see there's so much history in England about the ways in which at points in time God's people have moved within this blessing. They've, they've truly acted according to the power of the Spirit within them. And there's this deep heritage of that inheritance. But as I was reflecting in conversation with this person, he said, it often feels like that we, we in the English church are like, are like living in a castle that has these old ancient wine cellars full of the richest wine yet we spend our time sunning ourselves on the patio drinking Diet Coke. Um, we don't understand or realize or grasp uh, what the riches that we have in Christ are. So that's why Paul, he wants, he wants us to understand and to be encouraged by it. So that's where he takes us. He wants us to unpack that for us. Um, and, and we're gonna, but we're gonna take a little break there. So we're gonna go into our rooms and, I'm gonna, uh, and I've sent out the, the question and the question I want us to ask just for 10 minutes, if we can, is that question of how do you view God in your life? What's the image of God you have? If I was to ask you to give me a word picture of the presence of God in your life, what words would you use? And if you can, share that with each other. So as we come into the land, we're going to look at the, the, the last two final parts of Romans chapter 8. Um, but remembering the whole point of this is that Paul says at the beginning that he wants to come to Rome to encourage his friends uh, and, and with the, with the, give them this sort of truth. This is who you are. Because there is so much difference uh, between living lives that are shaped uh, by slavery to fear compared to living lives as ones in which our identity is in being children of God. And, and that's the whole point, is to grasp hold of that truth. But of course, Paul's encouragement um, isn't just about some sort of theory. It takes place in the real world. And at the end of verse 17, if you've got it there in front of you, you've got this thing where he talks about being heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But he talks about this, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And in verse 18, he mentions glory again. And, and this time it's the, the glory that will be revealed in us in the fullness of life in the spirit. 
But again, he also mentions these present sufferings. And, 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 and I'm glad he does. I'm glad that Paul doesn't live in some sort of gospel that denies reality. Uh, he recognizes that the Christian walk involves suffering. Uh, there's brokenness within us and around us. And that's a simple reality that, that bad things can happen to good people in this broken world. And especially there will be suffering for those who are moved by the spirit towards life and peace. And we'll look at that in a minute. minute. But how do we hold this? We've got glory and we've got this mention of uh, these present sufferings. How are we going to hold those things together? And to do that, I want to come back uh, to this framework uh, that we looked at uh, the last week or the week before. It's the framework of how we see, uh, how Paul sees history. We've got time going along the bottom. We see God's promises, his covenant uh, promises leading up to a fulfillment in Jesus. And then Jesus ushers in a new age of eternal life that will pass through the moment of the Lord's return and judgment day and move, go through to when all things are made good, a, heavens, a new heaven and a new earth, and they're all made right. And in Romans 8 here, Paul is looking ahead to this future day. And, and instead of the things that we talked about when we looked at it last time, he's now talking about this. What's going to happen? The Lord will return and this will be the day when the glory that of the Spirit of God that is will be revealed in us, uh, God's work will be revealed in us, and it will be glorious. Uh, and, and he talks about in verse nineteen how we will be revealed to be truly the children and the heirs of God. And in verse twenty, he talks about this day as the fullness of our adoption as heirs, when we have the redemption of our bodies. But, so this is the thing that's in front of us. This is that, that glorious moment, that, the, the eternal life in eternity future that we see, that we're bringing into this day of present sufferings. In this present moment, we are here between the cross and the return of Christ. We continue to live in this world of suffering, but we are stretched between the now and the not yet. And every Christian feels this. Uh, every Christian at the same time will pray, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And at the same time will say, save me, O Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, because we are looking both backwards and forwards and living in this moment where both are true. And here's the thing that Paul wants to pick up for us, is it's not just about us. It's not just about a few Christians getting to escape this horrible place to go to heaven when we die. This is actually about the renewal of creation. This is about the breaking in of the new heavens and the new earth, and it's attached to us. So as we live in this moment, uh, holding on to the hope of what God will do, we're doing it not just for ourselves, but for the whole of creation, the whole of human society and the cosmos in which we live. And it's that hope that I'm going to dare to say, it's that hope in the midst of, of the present reality that defines what Paul means when he talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings. Hope actually leads to a sense of suffering. 
And, and, and to explain that, we simply need to look at Jesus. Jesus, who was filled with hope, filled with life, filled with joy, yet was also called the man of sorrows. Because the one thing that hope does is it keeps us alive and awake and aware of the sufferings in the world around us. Because it's actually relatively easy to not suffer anymore. The way in which we alleviate our sufferings is we deaden ourselves. We deaden our hearts. We anesthetize ourselves. We actually live according to the ways of the flesh. And we either try and hold the sufferings at bay by pretending that we can be immortal, or we just cloud ourselves over and avoid the issues altogether. But when we dare to hope for what might be in Christ, then we become aware of the gap between the now and not, not yet. And we hold out for something more. We believe for what might be, and we grieve for what has been lost. And we see this in Jesus, who groans in Gethsemane, and he weeps over Jerusalem. And even Paul, towards the end of his life, will talk about his life in hope of being poured out like a drink offering, because he's spending himself uh, for, for, according to the way of the Spirit. So to hold out hope, to bring light, to speak truth, is to be open to pain, and even the pain of a cross, in Jesus' example, and, and is to be open to being opposed by the powers that would rather have us all avoid the problem or, or entrench a system where they, dare, where they think they can win, and all of that is actually the way of sin and death. So our hope and our sharing in Christ's sufferings go together. And that's the cost of love. And so here, what Paul wants to give to us is a sense of encouragement. So he wants to say in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what is coming is so much better than what we have now. And in verse 19, we see that this is all creation. The creation waits with eager expectation because in this moment verse 20 creation has been subjected to frustration in this current moment but it's a frustration which points to a hope uh, that in verse 21 it says that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of god so even creation is frustrated but is looking ahead to its eventual liberation. And in that hope, uh, there, and therefore in verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning, but these are now hope-filled groans. They're the groans like the, the pains of childbirth. They're pain with a purpose because uh, they're moving towards this day of vindication. And in verse 23, we see those who belong to Christ in the midst of this present sufferings, have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we have it in ourselves, we have a taste of the full joy that is to come. So as we groan inwardly, we also wait eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. And you see that in verse 23. You can see this. Why do we groan in verse 24? Because we have hope. In this hope, we were saved. And it is a hope because it's not yet a reality. Uh, you don't hope for something you already have, verse 25. But nevertheless, we do hope, hope 
And in verse 25, again, you see, we wait for it patiently. We wait for the day of the Lord. But here's the thing. We don't do it alone. In verse 26, he makes it, makes it clear. We are living according to the Spirit. So in the midst of these present sufferings, uh, in verse 26, he says, we don't even know how to pray, but the Spirit who is in us is helping us, interceding with us with groans that words cannot express. Uh, and, and this is how... Um, uh, and this is how we embrace that, that, that sense of sharing in Christ's sufferings and embracing the inheritance that comes before us. To, be, to follow the way of Christ isn't to pretend everything's hunky-dory right now, and it isn't to be despondent and hopeless. As a church, we are called to be hope-filled groaners, spirit-filled sharers in the life-filled sufferings of Jesus. And this is why, if that's how the life of, of a disciple looks like, this is why we get together. This is why we encourage each other. This is why Paul writes letters. This is why we do Lent courses. This is why one day we'll be having coffees with one another and having fellowship, because we strengthen each other in the midst of these present sufferings. That's what the Christian walk is all about. And so no wonder then, and this we come to our final point, the final part, um, Paul takes the, re the rest of his time in this part of his letter is he spends it encouraging them. He wants to build them up and to empower them. And he does this in three ways. The first thing he does is he wants to fill them full of assurance. God's plan is in effect. We are not abandoned. And I'm reminded of that story of um, John the Baptist in prison, who had declared who Jesus was, but now was imprisoned. And he, and he, he, in his despair, he sends out messengers to Jesus saying, have I got it right? Are you the one? And, and I often wonder, we, some of, I, I know what it's like for, and heard st stories from people, but how that is similar sometimes in our present experience as we pour our lives out into the pains of this world, and when it gets hard, we sometimes are crying out in prayer, is this worth it? Is this actually real? Jesus, are you there? Um, and, and what Paul wants to give us is an assurance. Yes, he says, God is in the midst of it. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he says, we know that in all things, good things and bad things, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He is at work. You are not alone. He has brought you to this moment. And in verse 29, he says, and he's making us more and more like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son, because that is the whole point. Jesus is it's not just Jesus who is going to go on into eternal life. He is going to be the firstborn into this new age. And it's God's plan to call, to justify, and to glorify an entire people so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's this first encouragement, if you can see it, that Paul wants to give an assurance uh, to his, his friends that God is at work. The second thing he wants to give them is he wants to assure them of protection, that God is there for us. 
um, uh, as we and, and because the reality is, as we hold on to hope in the midst of our sufferings, we will face opposition. And we know this because this was the case for Jesus. Uh, he brought light and truth. And those who were, who were opposed to that um, were, were, were literally willing to do violence to him. But the way in which Jesus defended himself from that opposition is he didn't fall back to his own strength. He didn't pick up the sword. He didn't call down armies of angels. He simply trusted in God. I only do what I see the Father doing. He leant back into his identity as a, the, the Son of God. And so if we are to live according to his spirit, we do the same thing. We follow the Father. We trust in him. We let him have control. We say, this is not my life, Lord, it's yours. This is not my church, Lord, it's yours. This is not my career, my business, my school, whatever it is, it's yours. We lean into him and entrust all things uh, to the Father. Because, and here's the point, in verse 31, 31 our, our, our protection lies not in ourselves, but in God. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's where our protection lies. Um, and, and it says, if God was, if God was willing uh, to give his only begotten son uh, to, to, for our sake, do you think he's going to throw in the towel now? No, he's going to graciously give all things, he says in verse 31. And even when we are accused of things or persecuted, or if, or if our past is held over us, as to, uh, or if, the, if there's a sense in which hopelessness is, is constantly uh, moved against us, then we appeal to Jesus. It's Jesus who has the final say in verse 33. Who will bring any charge? Who has the right to tear you down? The only one who, who, can, who can bring a condemnation, verse 34, is Christ Jesus who died. And more than that, he was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God. He is the one who has the right to our life. And so what is he doing? Is he sitting there at God's right hand, waiting for us to slip up so that we can be condemned? No. In verse 34, he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pleading for us on our side, claiming us as his own. So will his heart ever turn from us? No, we trust not in our circumstance. We trust in the love of God. Uh, we, if we are his brothers and sisters, if we are bound to him by the Spirit of God, if we have been bought at the cost of his own blood, then verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And it certainly is not going to be hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any of the other present sufferings that we might experience. In fact, we can lean into Psalm 44, which is quoted in verse 36, and we can face death all day long because not even death will be able to confound the love of God and his purposes. So he gives us protection. And then finally, and this is where we'll land it, uh, he assures us that there is victory. Now, Paul says in verse 37, in the midst of this present suffering, we are more than conquerors. Our hope will be vindicated because it's not in our strength, but in the strength of he who loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so through all these things that we've looked at, through all these things that Paul has talked to us about, they are here to encourage us. Uh, 
so that at the end of the day, when life gets hard, with Paul, we can say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's almost, that's in some ways, that is the pinnacle of Paul's encouragement. He wants to give us the tools by which we can understand that and with him be convinced of God's love. And so everything we've looked at, the fact that we are his covenant people, the fact that we are his redeemed people, the fact that we are saved by faith, just like that first promise to Abraham and, and the fact that we are bound by his you know, that we, we are covered by a grace that covers a, a magnitude of sins, the fact that we are bound by his spirit to the ways of Christ and not the ways of sin and death, and, and the fact that in the midst of our suffering and our groaning, we do so with a hope. All of that leads to this being convinced. It's all there to deepen our resolve that nothing will separate us from the love of God as we live our lives for him in this world. So I'm going to end it there um, and, and say amen and amen. And, and, and thank you for, for uh, being part of this journey in, in, the, in the Zoom world uh, as we've gone through Romans together. Uh, in a minute, what I'm going to do is, is send us off to our final discussion times. Um, and you'll see the questions that I've sent out to you. Um, it's an opportunity to talk about what it's like to live in a moment of present sufferings and, and to talk about how we groan with creation at this time and how and there's questions there about how we describe the hope we have and there's also this question of what has been what have you found in your reading in romans over these last few weeks which you can take into helping you have that resolve and being convinced of the love of god